Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone. I'm Mark Klobis, and welcome to the inaugural broadcast of Arguing History, where renowned historians meet to debate some of the key points in our past. This year is the centenary of America's entry into the First World War, an event that radically redefined the world as we know it. But was America's participation in it necessary? To discuss this question of whether the United States should have entered the war in 1917, we have joining us today two eminent historians of the conflict. The first is Michael Nyberg, who is the Stimson Chair of the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and the author of numerous books about the conflict, including The Path to War, How the First World War Created Modern America, and Dance of the Furies, Europe, and the Outbreak of World War I. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. We're happy to have you. Uh, the second is Brian Newman of the U.S. Army Center for Military History and the lead ed- editor of their centenary series of pamphlets on the war. Brian, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. It's great to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. So, the question today is, should the United States have entered the First World War? And I throw the uh, the topic, the question open to both of you. Gentlemen? Well, I guess my, my first response would be that I'm not sure that I see my role as an historian to look back 100 years and try to judge what people did a century ago from, from the position that I sit in now. We know now where all this leads. We know that the First World War is going to break the world um, in in a way that's going to lead to a Great Depression, a Second World War, a Holocaust, I would argue a Cold War, I would argue still some of what we're dealing with in the Middle East. Um, What Americans were feeling in 1917 was a sense that their three years of neutrality from 1914 to 1917 had made them less safe, not more. So In my mind, the question is not so much, should we have entered the First World War? The question in my mind is, what other options did Americans see in the spring of 1917? And as I've argued in the book, I don't think they saw many options uh, by April of 1917. Brian? Um, You know, I think that, again, uh, I agree with Mike and the idea that it's probably not for us to necessarily judge. or to uh, rethink the past with with the benefit of hindsight. I think one of the uh, ways that I was approaching it was, um, you know, if you ask what, should they have gone into the war, then it brings in Mike's idea of of options. But then, what were the reasons? You know, what were the economic issues? What were the political issues? What were the diplomatic issues? What were the what was the United States trying to accomplish? And from my mind, I think that there are some there's definitely some debatable points about whether or not the United States' decision to go to war was really reflective of the of, of the reality of the situation that they faced. I, I'd like to take a, a step back here for just a moment and. and and I apologize if I'm misrepresenting what the two of you are saying here, but both of you are making it seem as though that there was not really an option for war in 
uh, about whether or not to go to war in, in April of 1917. And I was wondering if you could perhaps unpack as to why there wasn't a choice. I mean, Michael, you, you've already explained how the Americans had this perception that uh, the war, that they were less safe after three years, uh, two and a half years of war than, than more safe. And yet at the same time, that that the the uh, devil's advocate position, if you will, is that Americans were not necessarily all that enthused about going to war. And, and so I, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I would absolutely agree with that characterization. I don't think Americans are enthused for war in the spring of 1917 at all. I think they see themselves as having run out of options. And I can talk about this as much as you as you want. But there are three events in the spring of 1917. One is the Russian Revolution, which takes the czar out of the equation and allows Wilson to actually make the statement that that this could be a war to make the world safer democracy, that that just as the American Civil War began over secession and ended up liberating and emancipating slaves, so too could World War I produce something positive. And that's a very short bit of that. Um, the Zimmerman Telegram, which is a direct threat to the United States, as is the, the Declaration of Unrestricted Submarine Warfare. So what I mean is that by April of 1917, Americans have, have concluded that they're in a much worse position than they had been a few months or a few years earlier. So I would argue they don't enter the war with enthusiasm. They enter the war with determination. And your point about options is well taken. There there are a lot of routes and a lot of paths that the United States could have taken. Um, In my view, the, the route that they the route that the American people take and the route that their president take are different. That is, Wilson really does have an idea, as expressed in the 14 points, to create a brand new world, to create a new world order, to reshape the world in America's image, whereas I think most Americans wanted to get rid of that situation where the war was increasingly encroaching on their own sense of security. So that, to, not to put too fine a point on this, so that by November 11th, 1918, when the German army lays down its arms and agrees to an armistice, most Americans think they've done what they came into the war to do, but their president wanted to continue on, which is what creates all that controversy about the League of Nations, the Treaty of Versailles, and all of that. So options were certainly there in April 1917. Um, there was not a yeah. clear articulation of what the end state was and whether the American people and their president were agreed on that. I think uh, you know to 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 expand upon that. You know, one of the one of the things I was thinking of in in terms of options was you know Wilson had a very clear option that uh, now it, it might have been naive, but uh, William Jennings Bryan, secretary of his secretary of state, who resigned over the issue, said if the Americans want to be neutral, then we should not be sending American citizens into a war zone. Don't put them at risk. Wilson rejected that idea uh, based upon his idea that uh, American, as a neutral power, had the right to do what it uh, uh, to be safe. Well, there's there's the idealist Wilson who thinks you know this is a matter of honor, and then there's the reality of well that's great, but you know honor's not going to protect you in the middle of a war zone. So I think that that was what I was thinking was that you know Wilson could have pulled the United States back completely banned all travel to to to, to the war zone uh, but he didn't do that sure there there were options on the table the United States could have done a naval contribution only to the war um, and exactly. there, was, there were issues being discussed should the United States declare war only on Germany or on all of the central powers Wilson's mm-hmm. you know the, the decision the American people and their president take is a declaration of war against Germany only 
And so all of these debates are revealing, I think, of what the American people think they're trying to do and what the problem is that they're trying to solve. If I may uh, draw upon uh, a point to which both of you have been uh, referring, you, you bring up this you know, issue about not letting Americans go into the war zone. And that gets to this, uh, you know, this, this, this pre-war context, which we have been addressing only in passing so far. And I want to uh, perhaps take a step back and illuminate that, which is the fact that the United States was not, you know, the uh, 12th man, if you will, who was kind of sitting in the uh, bleachers uh, just watching events. I mean, they were already involved at a very real level. And, and so that raises another interesting question. To what degree does that involvement uh, really foreclose or uh, a lot of these choices? Not not just a matter of, of, say, sending men into war, but to what degree does America's uh, financial involvement, what to, which, which famously came under fire in the 1930s, uh, or America's economic involvement really, you know, effectively make it, uh, a, give them uh, much less options by even 1916, let alone 1917. Uh, mind if I start on that one? Go for it. The, uh, I think that it definitely, that, that the increasing American uh, economic connections to, well, definitely the Allied powers, um, gave the United States much more of a vested interest in who won the war. Um, but again, I don't think that, um, I don't think that it, it, it made the Americans, um, much more likely to become involved. Uh, but it, it definitely tied us closer to the allies. Uh, but I, but we didn't, I mean, then you're getting into, you're starting to get into the idea that we go to war to save the allies, and that is certainly not the case. You know, we're yeah. we're no big fan of the allies. I would agree with that. The United States gets involved in the war, and this is under discussion from the very first days in 1914 for American interests. It's just that the American people can't agree on what those interests are. And just the only other point that I would I would raise is that the United States, if if economics was the only issue then neutrality, we're continuing neutrality, is actually the best option. And when we think about that debate of the 1930s that you mentioned, we think about the multi-billionaires, we think of the J.P. Morgans, we think of the financiers. But it is the case that everybody in the United States is making money. Per capita income in the United States goes up almost 70% between 1914 and 1917. If all you want to do is protect that continuing economic growth, then neutrality is the right answer. The problem for the American people, for the American people, and you can see it in Sunday sermons, you can see it in newspaper editorials, you can see it all across the country, is this sense that the American people have that if our only relationship to this war is to make money off of it, then what does that say about us? What does that say about the role of the United States in the world and who we want to be on the world stage? And that's a very uncomfortable question for Americans to answer. And I think what happens in the 1930s, that debate is really about the 1930s. It's not about the First World War period. Yeah, I think I think to to add on that to that is, um, you know, today it's very easy to talk about Wilson the uh, Wilson the idealist, but also Wilson the the night you know the naivete of Wilsonianism and so on and so forth, but. And, and to look at when people talk about things like ideals and promoting values, uh, you know, today it seems kind of quaint and, and, and it's just rhetoric. 
But I don't think that you can really say that about Wilson. And I think that he is really trying to, especially in his 14 points, and particularly in his uh, address to Congress on uh, April 2nd, that he is really laying out a moral argument for why we need to do this. And I think that he's speaking to what Mike is talking about, where he is trying to explain to the public you know, why this is a good thing to do. We don't want to do it, but it's the right thing to do, rather. It is, it is a moral effort. It's a moral cause, and that's what we're trying to achieve. And, and I think that those beliefs were sincere. Uh, but I wanted to tie this back into a point that the Michael was making. It's a dimension that, that we, we probably haven't addressed yet, which is that it's not just about America's intentions and America's goals, but also perceptions of America's role. Because at the beginning, uh, Michael, you drew in the, uh, the issue of the Zimmerman telegram. And that gets, I think, it raises this issue as to why you had the Zerman telegram, uh, which was when uh, Germany was trying to get uh, Mexico to uh, attack the United States uh, in 1917. Uh, and, and this idea as to whether or not Germany at some point just makes this conclusion that America is a hostile power and therefore, you know, basically, you know, makes that into a reality by virtue of their actions stemming from that premise. And, and to what degree, then, do we see that as perhaps what, you know, in effect tips us from making this rational decision that the United States can stay out of this conflict, as terrible as it is, even though we might have moral imperatives to get involved, versus saying, well, at some point, a fight is being picked with us, and so we're going to have to step in. Yeah, in my view, that's exactly what we're, you know, that, that's what it is. That's really what it is. Most Americans, I don't think, cared about the morality of Woodrow Wilson. Many Americans disagreed strongly with the morality of Woodrow Wilson. But what, what begins to happen from 1914 to 1917 is, again, this sense that by being neutral, we've made ourselves less safe. We've created a situation where Germany can make an, as outrageous a proposal as the Zimmerman telegram suggested, which says that. If the United States declares war on us, we, Germany, want you, Mexico, to invade the southwest of the United States. We'll give you back Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico. And oh, by the way, talk to the Japanese about coming into this alliance as well. So, you know, and with California as the lure, it's not stated in the Zimmerman telegram, but that's the lure. And the other thing that's playing in American minds is if the British and or the French find themselves at the breaking point, one way they could get out of the war at relatively minimal cost is to give up their Atlantic and Caribbean possessions. So you could be looking at a post-war world in which you have a German-Mexican-Japanese alliance aimed at the United States, while at the same time, a peace treaty could give Martinique, Halifax, Vancouver, you let your imagination run as far as you want, going from the British and French over to the Germans. So just to put not to find a point on this again, the United States took a lot of action in the 19, in 1916. We bought the Danish Virgin Islands from Denmark to keep them out of German hands. Uh, we started seriously planning for the defense of Puerto Rico. Um, so this is all being done out of this fear that, that, that the world is croaching in on us. And as you noted, that means this war is not really about morality at all. It is about the most justified reason of all, and that is national self-defense. And again, this is why I think the idea of going to war in April 1917 for self-defense is not controversial. The idea of going to war to remake the entire world in America's image, that is controversial. Now, in, in terms of self-defense, would you more say that it is 
what we're starting to see is that, I mean, American uh, foreign policy in the, ni- in the 19th century was essentially just protect the Monroe Doctrine. Um, and the, peop- the ones who in- essentially enforced that were the British. Sure. As the British are becoming less or, or becoming weaker, now the Germans are starting to encroach upon that. So, is it really going to war, or wouldn't the? I mean, theoretically, the ni- the uh, Defense Act of 1916 would have solved that well, by maybe. providing the American uh, American naval uh, ability to protect the Western Hemisphere. A, a big a big thing that's in the American public discourse in 1916 and 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 even in, a little bit into early 1917 is that America risks. The fate that that China suffered, a rich country, a, a, a wealthy country uh, that lacked the ability to defend itself so that it eventually gets picked apart by the European great powers. And the fear is that, that either the world war is going to produce a situation where one country is ridiculously more powerful than the others or it's going to produce a situation where one or more of those countries need to find a way to recover their economy and build their economy back up at the end of the war and the logical place for those states to do that is going to be in the united states so you're right you get a bigger navy out of this and of course 1914 is when the panama canal gets built but there's still the issue of the army there's still the issue of the overall kind of preparedness and industrial preparedness of the united states and it's all part of this fear that what the first world war has done is made this country less safe, not because we were doing anything nefarious, but because we weren't alert to the danger that was coming until it was too late. So it's all, I mean, why, you know, I, I keep thinking about the, uh, when I was thinking, when I was, when we were talking about the Zimmerman telegram and the, and talking about the, the Japanese and the, and the, and Mexico. And I mean, it almost makes me think of, you know, Reagan era and, you know, the Nicaraguan army is going to be marching up across the Southern border. I mean, how realistic do you think that the, that, that the people actually thought these proposals were? Well, what I think happens, and I think, you know, if you think about the Nicaraguan army, translate that into the much more powerful German army, and you can get a sense of where the spear is coming from. There's a series of teenage fiction books about, about a German invasion of the United States. People like Theodore mm-hmm. Roosevelt, I mean, it goes all the way to Theodore Roosevelt, are worried about this. Um, what I think is the case is that it's easy for many Americans, especially in the kind of center and left in the United States, to dismiss this as as you know Roosevelt just off his rocker, um, as the you know people militarists trying to stir up trouble, which is what people are saying in 1916. Then when the Zimmerman telegram comes out, I mean that is the smoking gun. That is proof positive that the Germans really do want to do this. So after the Zimmerman telegram, it becomes really, really difficult, even for socialists and pacifists in the United States, to kind of wave off the German threat to the United States. Now the question becomes, how do you deal with that threat? And that's obviously a very different debate. But to what degree so, can you so, say – go ahead, Brian. Sorry. I was going to say, you know, it, 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 to – when we're talking about this, it seems like the American people are on one page because they're talking about the fear and then the – the policymakers, um, I think that they see the threat, but I think from from uh, from my reading is that the German actions in terms of uh, the submarine campaign was a far more dangerous threat uh, and, a, and a far more realistic and prevalent threat to American interests versus what maybe the Germans are going to try and do. I mean, you know, I mean, as 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 much as I was. Uh, don't want to be dismissive of the Mexican army. I'm going to be dismissive of the Mexican army. I'm, I'm, but right. I understand the, the public fear, whether or not that's based in actual reality and in a, in a, in a, in a realistic fear. 
Well, remember, too, that, you know, this is a time period when Mexico was what we would call a failed state. I mean, it has a revolution in 1911. It doesn't get a constitution until 1970. I mean, all stuff I know, Brian, Mm -hmm. that you know, you know full well. So, you know, Pancho Villa claimed that the Germans were were, were backing his raid into New Mexico. Uh, There were there were certainly some very aggressive German spies working out of Mexico. So the question Mm -hmm. isn't so much that the Mexican army is going to march through Texas and Arizona. The question is, what if Germany wins the war and then it is Germany that sets this new world order? Is that something that America can live with? If the new world order is German conquest over Britain, France and Russia, while at the same time forming alliances with Mexico and Japan, is that a world that's in America's interest? And I think by the spring of 1917, the easy answer is no. And I think you can I think you can see in in terms of back to the question of should the United States have gone to war, you know, American interests in nineteen in, in the 19-teens, um, as Mike said, it, from an economic standpoint, it would have been fine if the U.S. maintained its neutrality because our economic interests were, well, one within the, the, the Americas, but also Asia. We were looking to expand, and truthfully, we're expanding economy, and the weaker the Europeans get, the better. I think that the question now arises with uh, uh, in terms of who's going to lead the international community, I think the American position is better the devil you know in terms of the British versus what looks like a truly aggressive upstart who may not be content to allow everybody else a piece of the tape or a piece of the pie, so to speak, as well. But, but yeah, if the I Pax Britannica works for the United States. The Pax Britannica is a, is a kind of control of the commons, not unlike what the United States Navy is doing today to keep the system flowing. If Germany right. it, it wins the war and wants to upset that apple cart, then the United States has to deal with a completely new international reality that clearly right. won't be to its advantage. Mm-hmm. But to what degree is that calculation being made uh, – you know, among the American population, I mean, you could see it among, say, uh, uh, strategists. You could see it among businessmen. You can see it among uh, people that are involved in the international, uh, you know, economy that's developed. But to what degree are, say, uh, American voters in Colorado or Alabama or, uh, if you want to be a bit more uh, uh, controversial, Minnesota, uh, where we have a, a, a very, you know, uh, heavy, uh, you know, German ethnic uh, presence, are, are they engaged with the issues at that level versus, say, a more elemental level? And, and here, it, the, the, what pops in my mind is is what Dalton Trumbo writes uh, in Johnny Got His Gun. And granted, he's writing with the, again with the benefit of hindsight, but he's you know conveys this idea that the American people, you know, we're not really we're sort of you know reading about this in the newspapers, and it was something that was happening, you know across the moat in, in Europe and, and wasn't really something that, that, they, that they weren't thinking in terms of uh, you know, trade or, 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 or economics. Well, no, but they certainly see wheat prices rising, cotton prices rising, pog prices rising. They certainly understand what it means to their pocketbook. They certainly understand what it means to their community's growth. I mean, uh, you know, the statistics are in the, are, are in the book, but I mean, the United States is, has a net negative trade balance with Europe when the war broke out, within weeks that has flipped to a net positive trade balance. And you don't need to be a macroeconomist to understand what that means. You don't need to have uh, a, a, an investment in a global trade firm to understand the way that that's happening. And another reason I think the Zimmerman telegram is so important is that it does make the point that the war is no longer about what's happening on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. 
It is now very much about what's happening in your country itself. And the American people did fully understand what this war was doing to them economically. Um, and I didn't mention this earlier, but it's worth it's worth saying. I mean, there were a lot of uh, Americans who were manufacturing things that Americans used to buy from Europe that people were now buying from American manufacturers because the war was making it impossible to get those things in Europe. And they include things like eyeglasses and pencils and Bibles, all of which Americans had typically bought from Europe before World War One. Um, I, I found a report when I was doing research for the book about uh, the American Bible sales groups and how happy they were that American Bible sales were just shooting through the roof because Americans couldn't get those items from Europe anymore. Bible salesmen in Europe, Bible manufacturers, were now using their printing capabilities to print military forms and whatever else it was that the armies needed. So it's not just that you're selling stuff to the Europeans. It's that you are using American markets to replace the old European markets. And the... You know, the American economy is expanding by leaps and bounds. I think mm-hmm. I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but we do go from a debtor to a creditor. Mm-hmm. And and by we were, we supplant the British as the largest creditor nation in the world. Kind of the global banking system or center shifts for a period from from uh, uh, from London to uh, New York City, and which is good for the American economy, but. With the as the as the economy is adjusting and as as things become uncertain for the like the farmer in in Wisconsin, they're not they're not sure what all this means, and that leads to uncertainty and fear. Let, let me uh, approach this question then from a different perspective. So, if if I uh, may, may summarize, basically, both of you are arguing that that the United States in the spring of 1917 did not have a a practical alternative to participating in the war, given their perception of security. Correct? Their 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 concerns about their security. Correct? Yeah, I would actually go a step further, and I do in the book in saying that the American people are pushing their president more than their president is pushing them. So, as soon as the Zimmerman telegram comes out. The city of Philadelphia, the state of New York, the state of Massachusetts, they all consider that the United States is at war. They mobilize National Guards. They mobilize militias. People are writing letters to the editor saying, what are we waiting for? Uh, two members of Wilson's cabinet considered resigning because they were afraid that the Senate might declare war without Wilson. So, you know, I, I, it's not the case that, that, that this story necessarily has to be centered on Woodrow Wilson. This is a fear that's going across the United States. And you know, but at the same time, it is a it, absolutely there is a public fear. But I think one of the things that we're struggling with, or and that we've actually we as historians have been struggling with since well, uh, April seventh of nineteen seventeen, is that you know, unlike World War II, obviously Pearl Harbor, proximate cause. There is no real clear proximate cause. I think that says the United States had no other options. It did. It could have chosen not to. But, I mean, whether the people... But you get the, you get this with the entire war uh, going back to 1914. You know, this is such a complicated war and that you have uh, the mass hysteria of the public versus the kind of the great game of international politics and international relations. Um jockeying for position how do you control the public so it 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 just gets into there are no real clean answers so to speak when when dealing with the first world war 
uh, as opposed to some some later wars, I think. The question I wanted to throw out, though, is this. At what point does entering that war become more rather than less likely? Is it with the Zimmerman telegram? Is it with the resumption of unrestricted U-boat warfare? Is it with uh, something more uh, nebulous in terms of this uh, in, this uh, imperceptible uh, shift in anxiety in the American people? At what point do we go towards, you know, uh, you know he kept us out of war being a, a popular appeal to we must get in this war uh, while we can still make a difference? Well, I mean, I think the, the the point we've made a few times is obviously right. There were always options. There were always other things that that could have been done. Uh, but I, you know, by early 1917, those options are narrowing considerably, and there are plenty of Americans. Even Wilson understood it. Wilson didn't much care for that. He kept us out of war slogan. In fact, he said how much he disliked it because he knew that the ball wasn't really in his court. Um, as he said to the Secretary of the Navy, that any German lieutenant can get us into this war at any minute. So there's there's a, there's an awareness among Wilson and his advisors that the options for the United States are narrowing. And again, what happens in the spring of 1917, the resumption of unrestricted submarine warfare means more Americans are going to be killed. And it means that the last two years of Wilson's diplomacy goes right out the window. The Zimmerman telegram has Americans really genuinely terrified and angry. And the Russian Revolution opens up possibilities for those people who want to believe that the war – as Wilson himself said it, that if war is sin, this might be the redemption, that Russia and then Germany become dem- democratic societies, and then you can get a Europe full of democratic societies. This is the origin of that notion of democratic peace theory, that democracies don't fight wars with one another. So you could argue that it's fear. You could also argue that there's a certain sense of hope. And again, to get back to the first point that you raised, it's difficult for us to do that now and see the world the way that people 100 years ago saw it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to answer to answer your question, uh, uh, the, the the question about was the, was there kind of a point where it became really really difficult? I think once the Germans resumed unrestricted sub warfare, it was just a matter of time. Um, and you know, the Zimmerman telegram obviously uh, sparked the 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 the, the public uh, imagination. And but I, I really think that once the Germans resumed that process or, or that technique, it's 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 only a matter of time. And in fact, Wilson is waiting to see whether or not the Germans are actually going to sink, uh, uh, kill Americans at sea. Once they do, yeah, it's it's really that's kind of the decision is made. And he's, he's kind of pulled. As Mike is saying, it's really not up to him. The Germans make the decision to resume. Uh, unrestricted sub-warfare, and then they start carrying it out. And at that point, Wilson's hands are tied. And, and yet they're not for a reason that you guys were pointing out earlier, which was that, you know, they could have, you know, theoretically said, okay, uh, no more American ships can travel to Europe, uh, no more, uh, you know, basically a ban on travel. Those options never seem to have come into play. There does seem to be the sense of, well, the Germans have made their decision and it's almost a, a more of, of a the, – the active response is to uh, sort of accept that war is coming. Well, the argument from Theodore Roosevelt and others would be that the United States had done exactly what you suggest for two years. That since the Lusitania, the United States had gone 
soft on the Germans, and look what it's gotten us. It's gotten us the Zimmerman telegram, the resumption of unrestricted submarine warfare, the potential defeat of Britain and France. Again, that the two years between the Lusitania and the outbreak of the, of, of the First World War for the United States created a far worse situation, and that the longer you wait, the worse it's going to get. So yes, there were options, uh, but the options look a lot worse. That That war looks like it's a terrible option, but to the eyes of Roosevelt, Leonard Wood, I would argue the vast majority of Americans by April 1917, all of those other options had made you more exposed, not less. So that's what I mean it, when I that I don't think the American people went to war with enthusiasm. They went to war with a sense of determination. Well, and I think that to, to that it's that the you know the United States had done had pulled back had not gone to war after after the Lusitania. You know the Germans, you know they make the Sussex pledge uh, in the, the the spring of 1916, and they essentially hold to it for ten months. Or I think my math might be a little off, but or nine months. But now the Germans have gone back on the word. So the Americans have given the Germans every opportunity to not show themselves to be the aggressor, not show themselves to be the danger, not show themselves to be the threat to international security and international peace. And the Germans just uh, uh, throw it out the window. They're untrustworthy. You cannot trust them to hold to their agreements. And you can't trust them not to do something crazy like reach out to – I mean, it's just baffling to think that Zimmerman actually admitted that he sent the telegram. It's just that the Germans are by by nineteen or by uh, February March of nineteen seventeen. The Germans are just obviously the aggressor, obviously out of control, obviously have no respect for international norms, international mores. So there's really no point. I mean, it's it's the rabid dog that has to be put down. And you know, Mark, you mentioned the- German Americans too. And you know, this is a, there's a transition that German Americans go through. This, so that in nineteen fourteen, German Americans are arguing largely for neutrality for keeping the United States at a distance from this conflict. By 1917, by late 1916, you see even German-Americans, people like Oswald Villard and, and Edward Rumley, who are making the case that it's not the Germans we need to worry about, but it is the Prussians. It is this regime that we need to worry about. So you get these arguments for what we would today call regime change that come out really clearly in Wilson's Declaration of War speech, in which he says several times, we're not going to war with the German people. We're doing this to help the German people. We're going to get rid of that awful government they have so that the German people themselves can realize the full potential of what they are. And now that to the French and British sounds incredibly naive, but it rings true even with many German Americans in the United States, most of whom incidentally are not Prussian and most of whom don't necessarily have all that warm feelings for the German German regime. These are men like Dwight Eisenhower, Eddie Brickenbacker, John Pershing – all of whom are German-American, but clearly understand their American identity as being more important. I want to uh, go back now to uh, a point that was made uh, earlier in uh, our uh, our conversation, which is this idea as to how, in many ways, American economic interests especially were being better served by uh, neutrality. Now, I don't want to get too counterfactual here, but I do want to raise this question as to uh, to go back to the question, which which uh, both of you uh, have have uh, you know suggested is is you know a very problematic one, which is should the United States eventually the First World War, which is to what degree might American interests in the aggregate have been better served by 
you know, in, in effect, going against this tide and and having, say, uh, a Wilson saying, uh, you know, even with this, we're just going to stay out of it because we just choose not to participate in, in, in what's taking place. To, to what degree might America have been better off staying out of the war, uh, given the benefit of hindsight? We should... Uh... We, we 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 should get now Ferguson on the line. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, there's two ways to answer your question. One is to take it with the knowledge that we have a century on, um, which, you know, to my mind, the answer is not so much do you or do you not go into the war. The answer is how do you structure a piece that will actually work? And here you're getting right, into right. The, the difference between what America wanted to get out of the piece and how Wilson handled himself. Here, Wilson does have to be in the center of the story. Uh, but the second question is, what were Americans talking about in the spring of 1917? And those are not the terms of the debate. The terms of the debate are, by, by, by inaction, we have put ourselves in a position where we could, we could endanger our security, our children's security, our grandchildren's security. And that's the problem that we have to solve. So I think you really are talking about two different kinds of questions when you, when you ask whether the United States – could or should have taken a different route in April of 1917. That raises, yeah. Go ahead, and, Brian. And, you know, I think that I think that if the if the convoy had maintained had um, had contained itself to the European sphere, that if the Germans didn't look like they were going to expand into where American interests were and were, were, were dedicated that you know perhaps the, the United States would have been fine to sit back and start ramping up and, and continue to ramp up its economy but you know it, it, it's really difficult to, to, to argue one way or the other but both of you are raising a very interesting point that we've been talking about in passing, which is the degree to which the war coincides with this, with what both of you are pointing to as this growing American awareness of its of its role in the world. You mentioned Brian, how uh, you know the nineteenth century. Uh, I think it was you, Brian, about how in the nineteenth century there was this Monroe Doctrine, which was essentially a British enforced Monroe Doctrine. But now in the 20th century, the United States is no longer willing to just issue proclamations. They're increasingly thinking, well, if we want this, we have to engage and, and make it make it happen. Well, I think you're seeing, I mean, you're seeing just a process of the expansion of American uh, reach in terms of international affairs. I mean, the United States is, has always been an expansionist nation. And the, I mean, by 1917, what we'd had, uh, the Philippines for just under two decades, uh, we'd had, uh, Hawaii for what, three decades, I believe. Uh, check my math on that. But, uh, so we're seeing a slow, very slow, um, expansion of American interests abroad. Um, and now the United States, and, and one of the things that, as, as Mike had said, one of the things that had enabled that was the Pax Britannica. Now we're starting to see a challenge of that, and you see the American position, uh, which had been a slow but steady increase over the past half century. Uh, now you see a real question about, okay, if the British, if the, if the 
system that has enabled us to expand is now under threat, what's going to happen after that? And that's where we really get into we have a vested interest in who wins this war. And we, we know what comes next. But in 1917, of course, they did not. And there were any one of a number of possibilities, a German victory on the Western Front that leads to a Pax Germanica, the possibility of later on in 1917, the possibility of the Bolshevik Revolution spreading worldwide. I mean, we know where this ends and we know how bloody right. that road is. Of course, they did not. And it's important to underscore that. You, that. This is what I mean when I say it's difficult to look back with what we know because you have to understand the world that they're seeing and to many Americans, and you see this from late 1914 on, it looks like Europe is tearing itself apart, that Europe is not going to be in a position to be the leader of the world. And there's a lot of Americans, Roosevelt is, is the loudest voice among this, saying, look, if it's not going to be the Europeans, it, it should be us. We are the ones ready to do this. It's just that Wilson and Roosevelt and many other Americans had this debate about exactly how that should play out and exactly what the new world ought to look like. You know, and you know, we should also remember that we do have, in fact, the the increase of the Japanese, yes. who who were definitely seen as a as, as an as an up and coming challenger, as a threat in in Asia, which is the you know almost the great prize is you know what is the what is what are the positions going to be in East Asia? That aspect of America's engagement with uh, the world. Sometimes feels as though it's being left out a lot of this, uh, a lot of the works that have been written about the war. They treat it as sort of this uh, tripolarity: America's relations with Britain as a nation, America's relations with Germany as a nation, how Americans were responding to the war. And yet, what both of you are pointing to is the fact that there was this dimension of America was beginning to find its place as a global power, and that that was a very much of a real consideration in terms of this question of whether or not America it, uh, joins the war uh, on whichever side. There's no question about that. The debate is how to exercise that power. So you have people like Wilson who want the United States, uh, William uh, Howard Taft is another one, who want the United States engaged in creating international organizations and creating global global institutions that will reduce the overall threat of war and increase the chances of prosperity. Then you get folks like Roosevelt and Henry Cabot Lodge who argue, well, no, that's not the way the international system actually functions. And the best thing for the United States, and by extension, the best thing for the world, is if the United States exercises its power independent of those organizations. And that's a debate that existed before World War One, but it's it's on the margins. By 1917, 1918, 1919, it's at the center of what Americans are talking about and what they're debating, and that's why the Treaty of Versailles is so controversial. The question isn't whether or not the United States will be playing a bigger role on the world stage. Everybody agrees that it will. The question is what kind of a role ought it to play, and what should America's interests be? What should we be pursuing? Which is which kind of gets into the misperception of the 1920s and the and and the 1930s. The Misperception of Ameri of what does it mean when the United States rejects Versailles? It doesn't. This idea that we just withdrew behind the the, the uh, confines of the Atlantic and the Pacific is completely false. American is still the United States is still an international player, and they're expanding. It's just in what format are they doing that? Are they doing it within the the confines of the League of Nations, or are they continuing to play this power politics of, of looking for their own interests? 
Yeah, uh, it's the, it's slightly more idealistic, I, I think. I mean, you know, the United States, the argument, whether it's true or not, whether it's hypocritical or not, the argument people like Lodge are making is that not only does the United States benefit from a greater expansion of American power, but the world benefits from an expansion of American power. And, of course, that argument is not limited to the 1920s. That argument is something right. that you hear today as well. So one of the things that, you know, about the First World War that to me is so interesting is these ba- this basic framing of the debate. Should the United States participate in the world through international organizations, or should it be allowed to operate the way that it wants to in the international arena for its own good and for the world's good? That's a debate that we've been having ever since. Right. And conti- and, and obviously continue on today. I mean, you know, Paris, yeah, par- Paris was a classic example. Well, the, the country is still going to benefit if the United States is in the lead. Well, but we can, we can, we can, that's for another show. <laughs> I think it's interesting, though, in what is different from the debate today versus the debate that takes place a century ago, which is that a century ago, though America is this emerging power, both of you are pointing to this degree of insecurity in the sense of, it, not, not so much insecurity out of uh, a sense of, well, you've, you've, uh, both of you point to the fear that was felt, but also the, the uncertainty. America has never really exerted this role on this scale, and it faces these uh, these these very uh, threatening uh, powers with a very hostile interest to, to uh, uh, America's uh, uh, sphere of, of influence. You have Germany, you mentioned uh, Japan, which was... Uh, technically an ally during the war but there 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 does seem to be this question that america's never really taken on a struggle of that caliber and there is this question uh, that, that both you seem to be hinting at which is america doesn't know necessarily how well it will do in that scenario well i i don't think that they have any idea how well they'll do um you know this is this is something that uh um that i've raised in, in some of our work on on the army uh, when we actually get into the war, none of these guys know what they're doing. They're this is very new, uh, a new experience in terms of how do you play on. I mean, you know, this is the United States playing on the big stage. I mean, our you know the great. I mean, the greatest previous international uh, uh, kind of crisis that we'd had was 20 years ago when you had essentially a third-rate power beating up on a fifth-rate power, which during the um, Spanish-American War. Now it's where we have a seat at the at the grown up table, so to speak, and they don't necessarily know how to do this. This aspect of sort of America. You guys been cutting in and out, so I apologize. Oh. Are, are you sorry about that, Mike? I don't know if it's my Wi-Fi link or what, but you guys, there was a little bit of cutting in and out uh, there, so I don't want to walk over Brian. But is it okay if I add something there? Please do. Yeah, please. Yeah, I mean, I would say that, you know, militarily, I think Brian's absolutely right. They they don't know what they're doing, even though many of them aren't conscious of it. But at the meta level, I mean, I, I hate to keep coming back to Theodore Roosevelt, but but he exemplifies this very muscular notion that the United States does know what it's doing. It'll have to figure it out, but that the Europeans have obviously shown that they can't do it. And on the other end of that scale, you know, Wilson thinks this as well. It's just more of a kind of moral vision that Wilson is trying to lay out. So there are plenty of Americans already talking about an American century, already talking about replacing Europe, already talking about reshaping the world either in America's image or to America's advantage. 
But either way, they are aware that they're going to come out of this war in relatively a much stronger position than when they went out of it. The question is what to do with that power. Mm-hmm. So to what degree do we then perhaps miss or overlook or understate this aspect of it in 1917? Because it we do present it in terms of uh, unrestricted U-boat warfare, Zerman telegram, uh, and yet it, we seem to have really kind of you disconnected it from this debate that's been taking place that that, that both you're referring to, and, and that really does reflect the sense that it it goes back to uh, the the point that both you raised at the very beginning that it really wasn't a question of you know should the United States get into the war in, in a sense this growing this change that was taking place in America's position in the world made such an uh, an engagement for lack of a more precise word inevitable. Yeah, again, I think I'd highlight it. it wasn't inevitable, though I think it's increasingly more likely. The question, again, is what do you want to do? And one of the one of the hinge points of this, of course, is the League of Nations. Should the U.S. belong to it or not? Another hinge point is whether the United States ought to assume control over parts of the old Otto, Ottoman and Austro-Hungarian empires, which Wilson is adamant that the United States won't do. And the Europeans are trying best they can to say, look, you keep criticizing us for what we're doing in the colonies and for what we're doing in empire – Take a role. Take part of Turkey. Take part of Anatolia. Take Armenia. Take control of these regions and see if you really can do any better. And it's Wilson's adamant refusal to do it that just exasperates the Europeans, that you want to be on uh, playing a role uh, on the stage, but you don't really want to take any responsibility. So this, to me, is all part of this debate, and Brian was, was getting at it. You know, what, what do you think you want to do, and do you think you're qualified to do it, and that's where I think some of the insecurity Brian was indicating is coming out of. That, that to, to criticize the Europeans is one thing; to jump in and actually try to govern a place like Armenia, that's something completely different. You know, and it's it's um, it's interesting if you look at you know when you look at Versailles and you look at at Wilson's, well, I, I would not necessarily say abject failure, but he did not. You know, he's lack of success. He's thinking, yeah, well, lack of success, and it's it's also that I think from Wilson's point of view, he thinks everybody should agree with him. And to what Mike said is, they said, and their argument was, well, okay, then show us you can do it. Show us leadership. Show us that you know uh, that that you can actually uh, operate on this stage. And we've been doing this for centuries. And this is how it's been, and Wilson is trying to, to rewrite a new, uh, rewrite the, the international uh, system. Well, that you're going to have to get a whole lot of buy-in, and you don't get it from from the Europeans. They'll, they'll go some some of the ways, but they're not going to just throw out the entire system that has benefited them. Yeah, to Brian's point, there's a wonderful anecdote when David Lloyd George is criticized in the House of Commons for not doing better for Britain in the peace treaty. He's supposed to have responded, I don't think I did too bad, considering I was sitting between Napoleon and Jesus Christ himself. And <laughs> Jesus Christ himself is Wilson, of course, coming up with these you know, grand ideas. Uh, Georges Clemenceau, the Napoleon of that anecdote, the French premier, when Clemenceau 
also first saw the 14 points, he said God himself was content to give us just 10. So there is this sense that the Americans really don't have any clue about the way that Europe is really organized. And, you know, I used to do this with undergrads all the time when I taught the 14 points and the Treaty of Versailles. I would walk in and say, where is the president of the United States today? And the point is that nobody knows. He could be in China. He could be in Africa. And no one would think of it as unusual. Wilson was the first American president to leave the United States while in office. It was an enormous deal that he had done that. And then he goes to Europe and tries to tell the Europeans the way they should organize their society. And then he's surprised when they're unhappy with his proposals. It's also that – you know, that- oh, go ahead, Brian. You know, and it's really remarkable that Wilson never went to Europe during the war. Right. He, he doesn't go until after. And if so, there's a, you know, Wilson has this level of detachment from what is actually going on. He doesn't have personal relationships with these men. You know, he doesn't have, so he is just, he is a true outsider coming in to this system. Um, and I think it's, I mean, it's just really kind of remarkable if you look at the Ameri- uh, the American effort, you know, you have men like John J. Pershing and Tasker Bliss, uh, who, and, uh, uh, who are operating essentially, I mean, from a military standpoint, they're having to do diplomacy. They're, they're essentially acting like a chief of state, which, because Wilson is remaining back in the United States. So it's a, it's, it's a very alien, uh, uh or a very, strange position when Wilson comes in because he is truly an outsider. Or contrast it to what Franklin Roosevelt does in the Second World War. And part of this, I understand, is technological. It's easier for, for Roosevelt to move around than it was for Wilson, but a large part of it is attitudinal. It's it's the way that Roosevelt wants to conduct strategy. It's the way he wants to do things. And his style is just night and day different from what Wilson is trying to do, in part, I think, because Roosevelt understood better than Wilson did, as Brian said, that you have to get buy-in, that the United States, as powerful as it is, is not in a position to just say, look, we're reorienting the world. This is how it's going to be. Get on our backs. And and Roosevelt understood much better than Wilson did that that you, you couldn't create something out of clay, that you had to deal with the situation as it was in existence. I mean, you know, Wilson almost goes out of his way, or he, not almost, he goes out of his way to keep the United States separate. And we are not a member of the alliance. We're an associated power. So we are going to fight the war, and he gives, he gives Pershing essentially carte blanche to fight the war in the way he wants. Now Pershing has, he recognizes uh, begrudgingly that he needs the French and the British to help build up the American military effort or support the American military effort. But Pershing essentially has the authority to do whatever he wants to do if it serves American interests and to reject the allied positions if that does not serve America, uh, the end of America or does not serve American interests. Very famously, when Wilson came to France to, to begin the negotiations, the French wanted to take him to the First World War battlefield so that he could see what the Germans had done to France with his own eyes. And Wilson quite quite famously created an enormous scandal by refusing to go. And it's the most simple, basic political act that one can do. So from the very beginning of the conference, he and the French and then later he and the British 
are just not seeing the world in quite the same terms. And Brian was reluctant to use the phrase abject failure, but I'd, I'd, I'd be willing to go there, uh, that, that, that the, 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 the performance of Wilson at the Paris Peace Conference is abysmal on more than one level. I was thinking it's a bit unfair in a sense to compare Wilson to Roosevelt because Roosevelt had the benefit of Wilson's example to build upon. He knew, in a way, how not to do it, and and that the, the and that Roosevelt, who himself had gone to Europe during the First World War, probably appreciated that 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 direct engagement during the conflict a lot better than than Wilson did, who really had no previous example. I mean, the, the only other real example of a, of a presidential intervention on that scale was Theodore Roosevelt uh, in the Russo-Japanese War. And he had the participants come to him. Uh, he tried he played this, uh, you know, this position of, of being an arbiter. And ultimately, it was one in, in which you know he could do because the United States was not a participant. Wilson, by contrast, had only that, and he was trying to have it without really acknowledging that it was a different situation. Britain and France were not uh, really uh, prostrate and dependent upon uh, the U.S. the way they would be in 1945, uh, and that Wilson basically was sort of making it up as he went along in that respect. Well, I'm not a political or presidential historian, but I mean, I feel pretty safe in concluding that Franklin Roosevelt was simply the better politician of the two. And the more I look at Woodrow Wilson, especially in the war years, the more I see a weak politician who's trying to balance both sides, trying to balance his critics to one side and his critics to the other side. And he's trying to find a way forward. And you have to remember, Wilson won the 1912 election only because of a split in the Republican Party. And he lost the 19, he won the 1916 election by the narrowest margin in American history until 2000. So this is not, by any stretch of the imagination, a uniformly popular president as Franklin Roosevelt was. So there's that contrast as well. Roosevelt believed, and later Harry Truman believed at the end of World War II, that they commanded a much greater sense of support. And you know, not, not to uh, go too far into the future from where you want to go, but Truman, before he went to the Potsdam Conference, was quite careful to make sure that he had the approval in the U.S. Senate for things like the Bretton Woods Agreement, for the United Nations, that all of that was decided before he went to Europe. And those are things that Woodrow Wilson should have done and did not do. And again, part of it is because he just wasn't a very good politician. And and to expand upon that, he would he admittedly said that he was on he was disinterested in international affairs and he said i think he said he that it would have been the great it, it would a great be a great tragedy if his administration was known for foreign for foreign relations which of course is i mean which is hysterical considering we have an entire school of 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 international relations theory named after him <laughs> or or a philosophy but and he was he was not at all interested in international relations he wanted to do domestic issues. He wanted to bring some kind of semblance of what he termed reason and moderation to progressivism. He wanted to continue it on. He was not at all interested in that. So, and, and, so Mike is definitely correct in terms of just you know Roosevelt is a much better politician than than Wilson is. And I think you get a clear sense of Wilson's arrogance too—that he has the answers, and therefore compromise weakens the final solution. Which, you know, if it if it works, and you actually are right, and you actually can convince people of that, then maybe it's the way to go. But you know, it, one of the reasons the Treaty of Versailles goes down to the defeat that it goes down to is the Republicans came back to Wilson and some congressional Democrats and said, "Look, if you can make these changes, we think we've got the votes." 
And Wilson's response was absolutely not. I, I, absolutely not. There will be no negotiation. There will be no reopening of this. And there will be no compromises. That That's the kind of thing. It's really hard to imagine a, a season-wise popular politician like someone like Franklin Roosevelt saying unless it was a principle that he really, really held to. And and I think that some you know some could some could argue that by that time obviously his his health was failing, but I think you can look earlier in 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 his career and Wilson always had this elite uh, um, kind of sense of self and true disdain for compromise and disdain for um, we had I think fairly thin skin would be a. Uh, a, a way to describe him. Uh, gentlemen, I was wondering if we could kind of tie it all together and sum up because it, it, we've opened up a lot of very interesting uh, uh, avenues here, and I, but I want to kind of bring it all together in, in that when we're engaging with this question of should the United States venture the First World War, it isn't just really, though, it seems a matter of whether or not the United States could have avoided it in April of 1917. Both of you have made some very good arguments for why we shouldn't have why we couldn't have, but also this idea that, you know, it really does dictate the terms by which the United States is trying to define itself in uh, the world, and it, not necessarily in ways that the United States ultimately is, is comfortable with. Yeah, I think this has been a debate we've had ever since. I mean, I, I you know, there's a really good argument to be made that this sets the course of American foreign policy and everything that more or less has come, has come since. And the most recent presidential election brought it out again, where there were two political candidates, one of which was arguing that the United States needs to play a leadership role in international organizations, and the other political candidate who was arguing that we should be doing just the opposite, that we should be free to act unencumbered by international organizations, and we should negotiate with the world on bilateral terms, and that that's not only good for us, that's good for the world. And however one feels about those two arguments and however one feels about those two candidates, it's easy for me to see as an historian where these ideas are coming from, what part of our DNA is being expressed in this. And it comes from the First World War. It comes from this question of whether the United States should operate in the international system like everybody else or whether the United States should recognize that it is not like everybody else and whether the United States ought to function in that system in a completely different environment. So to me, you know, the last few years has only validated the importance of studying this war and of doing it at the level of complexity of the war itself, that simple answers are simply not going to work here. And I absolutely agree, and I think the the other dimension, and this is something we haven't really gotten into, but the other dimension is there is still in 1917 an ongoing question about what is the nat- what does it mean to be an American? What is the nature of the country all about? And this, and when you when you start to think about international affairs, you know this really um, this really comes into play because it's the question of okay, whose interests, what, how do we define American interests? Whose interests are those? Are they you know this element of society, that element of society? Is everybody bought into the concept of the United States? Uh, That's why we get into the the anti-German stuff and and the 100% American. But, you know, the U.S. is really still in flux. And it's a lot of – and to to, to many degrees, we're still in because it's still this this, – how do you create a unified uh, um, 
national identity from this polyglot, this 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 uh, great assortment of, uh, of of disparate groups, and trying to create that, and then trying to create a unified foreign policy, it's incredibly difficult. That element of national definition is is one that is very fascinating, but unfortunately, I think we're going to have to leave it for a future podcast. Uh, Michael Nyberg, Brian Newman, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedules to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks very much. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. <laughs>